Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, the 21st of August, 2023. Uh, already this morning, did a fascinating interview with DJ Taylor, is probably the world's leading authority on George Orwell. He has written not just one, but two major biographies of Orwell. The first was called A Life or The Life of Orwell. The second is The New Life. It's just out. And uh, it's about how in uh, Taylor's mind, at least, Orwell remains as relevant today in the 21st century as he was in the 20th century. And of course, uh, particularly in the context of his best-known book, 1984, uh, focused on the Ministry of Truth and Big Brother and all the other themes that seem to be reappearing in our age of the crisis of democracy and the reappearance of one kind of authoritarianism or another. One man who is all too familiar with the reappearance of this Orwellian state is my guest today, Lee McIntyre, um, is a long-term writer um, and polemicist on defending truth, objectivity, and science. Uh, he was on the show a couple of years ago, actually almost exactly two years ago in August 2021, uh, talking about a book in which he focused on how to talk to a science denier. And he's back today with a similar theme on disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy. Lee is joining us from Newton, Massachusetts. Um, Lee, congratulations on the new book. It's just out this week. Would you agree with Taylor? Do you think Orwell today is as relevant in 2023 as he was in 1943 or 53? Absolutely. And I, I was just writing down the, uh, the title there. I think I want to read that book. When I was writing my earlier book in 2018, Post-Truth, I opened each chapter with a quotation from Orwell. That's how relevant I think he is for our, our current era. And just one little tidbit that I thought you might be interested in. I was talking to some uh, Russian students recently who told me that George Orwell's 1984 is right now the best-selling book in Russia. Yeah, which is hardly surprising. What's perhaps more surprising is it's actually available in Russia. Yes. You, your new book uh, on dis disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy, as I said, it's a MIT book. It's a small polemic, a kind of manifesto, I guess, in defense of truth. It's out this week. Um, you suggest that this crisis of truth or what you see as a crisis of truth has been going on in America now for over 70 years. Uh, Lee, tell me this narrative. Remind me of the narrative. What, what's been happening over the last 70 years? Yeah, you can date it even a, a little bit uh, more precisely than that. Uh, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway in their book, Merchants of Doubt, talk about a meeting that the... And that those guys have actually been on the show. Yeah, yeah. They, they talk about a meeting that the uh, heads of the big tobacco companies had on December 15th, 1953, at the Plaza Hotel in New York City, in which they were talking about what to do about a forthcoming study, which was going to show a causal link between smoking and lung cancer. The point of this meeting was to decide what to do. And they had the um, an executive from one of their uh, 
from a public relations firm come in and advise them. And what he said was, fight the science. So they took out full-page ads in American newspapers, and they started a precursor of the American Tobacco Institute. They started to lobby uh, journalists and editors to tell the other side of the story, the, you know, the other narrative, which they felt uh, was being underreported. Of course, it was a lie. It was made up, which was the idea that scientists uh, doubted whether there was a link between smoking and lung cancer. I take your point about the role of the tobacco industry in 1953, but there were many cases before and after that. Why is this so historically relevant? Um, there were cases before. I mean, Galileo, Giordano, Bruno, I mean, we, we can go way back. Um, I think that modern science denial is dated from that meeting because as uh, Oreskes and Conway point out in their book, that was the blueprint, that was the roadmap that other forms of science denial followed ever since. Um, if you look at the history of the fossil fuel industry's denial of climate change, it followed uh, you know, very closely that, uh, what they call the tobacco strategy. Uh, same thing for the ozone hole, same thing for, um, uh, for acid rain. Uh, you know, right up today through uh, through anti-vax. And I maintain in my book, it's the same, that tobacco strategy is the same strategy that's used for reality denial about January 6th, uh, about the uh, uh, the big lie, uh, Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. I take the point that perhaps Trump's quote, what, what you're saying is this big lie um, is, is like this, but this goes back before the tobacco industry behavior. I mean, it goes back to the 1920s in, in Russia. And I know you suggest mm -hmm. that. Put the, put the horse before the cart here, Lee. Are you suggesting that science denialism is the first mover here? Um, aren't there forms of denialism before science? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are. And... Um, I guess the important point is not how far back you trace it, uh, because politicians have always lied. There have always been people who have resisted science. I mean, you could make a case for you know going back as uh, as far as as far as science, as far as recorded history, if if you wanted to. I think that the important point to make about the situation that we're in now is that I believe that we're now in what I call the post-truth era, which is what my earlier book was about. Because there's something different now. And what's different now is the amplification of false information. People have lied. There's been false information for, you know, for decades, for centuries, for millennia. What's different now is that lies can literally get halfway around the world uh, in a few seconds. Uh, there's uh, the it's been shown empirically by cognitive scientists that it's the amplification of, of uh, bad information that's the root of the problem. It's, um, you know, when when people, you know, learn about false information through other resources, it doesn't travel quite so quickly. But there's a almost a uh, uh, an allergic uh, effect uh, to it, you know, where uh, it goes from one person to another on the Internet. How would you fit the Scopes trial and the debate about evolution, particularly the Scopes trial, I think it was in 1924 or 25 in the United States. I mean, that was before. Yes, it was. Uh, before the, the tobacco industry yeah. uh, 
issues in 1953 that you talk about. Isn't this just a permanent feature of history? I'm, I'm going to draw a distinction here between people who resist science based on genuine good faith beliefs that are threatened by science versus people who resist science understanding that the scientists are correct. And I think if you look back at the Scopes era, um, you may find some examples of people who you know, felt that evolution threatened their religious beliefs, Christianity in, uh, in particular, um, uh, you know, and, and, but they knew that evolution was true, but they couldn't have it and they wanted to pump out disinformation against it. But I don't think that's really the prime motivation of what was going on. I think that people were genuinely threatened by this belief. Their own beliefs were genuinely threatened because they actually believed in Christianity. They actually were uh, dug in on the idea that evolution could not be true. Not that it mustn't be true, but that it could not be true because they believed in the literal truth of the Bible. And so that was not possible. What you have today with science, the form of science denial that I've been talking about, is people who are cynical. The tobacco executives understood that tobacco caused lung cancer, but they maintained that it didn't because they were cynical, because they wanted to continue to sell cigarettes. The executives at the fossil fuel companies understood that climate change was real. Some of the best research on climate change was done by ExxonMobil in the 1970s, but they covered it up. Their own scientists had predicted it, had known about it since the 70s, but the executives lied and funneled money to people who would lie for them because even though they, you know, in bad faith, they knew that the scientists were correct. They didn't want it, the story to get out that it was true. I think that that's a distinction here, an important one, because uh, misinformation is a mistake, but disinformation is a lie. And one that's really the foundation for my book. Right. That, this distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Right. But Correct. isn't that, so to speak, Lee, in the eye of the beholder? I mean, I'm guessing that you think that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s observations about science um, are yeah. uh, that he knowingly is lying. But who knows? I mean, he would claim that he doesn't. Well, I guess I'm going to say that in, in some sense, and, and I mean, you, you ask a good question, and you, you're pushing on it in exactly the right way. If something starts as a lie, but then it's later believed by other people who amplify it, does that make it become misinformation because the people who are amplifying it believe it? I don't think so. Uh, if something starts as a lie, I think it's disinformation. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, one of his core beliefs is that the MMR vaccine causes autism. That was a lie. That was started by Andrew Wakefield, who was stripped of his medical license for um, not only bad research, it later came out that it was fraudulent, that he he knew that the research that he was doing was wrong, but he had a competing interest in another vaccine and was making money on this. So whether, you know, Kennedy is a, uh, a true believer, whether he's a, a useful idiot, I mean, it doesn't really matter. What he's spreading started as a lie. Therefore, it's disinformation. He, I mean, what's in it for Kennedy apart from getting into the headlines. I'm, I'm not he's sure. quite different from the tobacco. I, I understand that the tobacco industry execs, I mean, it was clear what's in it for yeah. them, sale of cigarettes. Well, um, 
But, but can't but, we say that everyone is in this business? I mean, the alcohol industry now is fighting yeah. certain scientific truths now, which are trickling, perhaps appropriately, dripping out about the relationship yeah. between drinking alcohol and one kind of ill health or another, cancer. Uh, I mean, aren't we all in one way or the other, all stuck with these problems? Again, I think you have to draw a distinction between the people who invent the lie and are profiting from it versus the people who believe the lie and are victimized by it. Whether Kennedy, uh, Kennedy may well be a victim. He may well be victimized by his uh, false beliefs about vaccines. Now, who, who knows? I, I, don't, I don't know what he's gaining from it other than notoriety. But, I mean, it is possible just because he's an amplifier of a false belief doesn't necessarily mean that he's a disinformer. It could mean that he's somebody who is um, amplifying someone else's lie. So who are the disinformation? Who are the evil, in your mind, say, yeah. the, the, the evil disinformation crowd behind the issue of, of, of the RFK vaccines, who are clearly, is there a smoking gun on these people? Yes. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, everybody has heard by, and I'll make it contemporary, I'll link it to the, uh, to the, the pandemic, the recent pandemic. Um, everybody has heard of the idea, the false idea, that there uh, might be tracking microchips in the COVID vaccines. How many people know where that came from? Um, that lie was amplified, if not originated, by the SVR, which was uh, an offshoot, a branch of you know, what used to be the KGB. Um, in April 2020, they published uh, an article in an English language propaganda arm of the SVR called the uh, Oriental Review. And it said any future vaccines developed in the West will have tracking microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who holds patent 666 on this technology. The bottom of the article, it said share on Facebook, share on Twitter. The following month, remember, this was May 2020, the following month, 28% of the American Republic, uh, of the American uh, public, and 44% of Republican voters uh, believed that there was something to this. So, I mean, Putin, uh, Putin's Russia has been in a disinformation war about American science for decades. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times in 2019 called Putin's Long War Against American Science, showing that on HIV AIDS, on vaccines, on all sorts of, uh, he especially likes health uh, issues, uh, he was trying to undermine American society by attacking science. That's where some of the evil is coming from. You sound... Lead as if there's, there's an element of the Cold War here. Are you suggesting that that the Russians, Putin in particular, is trying to destroy American democracy, and that the smoking gun goes back to May 2020, and this one piece of misinformation or disinformation about the the, the vaccine? No, I, I'm saying it goes back further than that. Um, I just one of the scariest books that I ever read recently was called The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. It's published by NATO. It's not a, a training manual. It's, in a, I mean, it is a training manual to expose what uh, Russian information warfare is about. It's for NATO soldiers and commanders to understand that Russia already considers itself to be in an information war with the West. And that one reason they do it, uh, they do it as an ancillary to kinetic war, but also 
in the absence of kinetic war as a means of achieving the same strategic goals, one of which is regime change in the United States. So this is, I mean, sometimes when I talk about this, people say, oh, it sounds like a conspiracy, except there's actually evidence for this. Uh, I encourage people, you can get that book that I just mentioned, The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare, from NATO. It's on a PDF uh, for free on the internet, or you can write to NATO like I did and get a free copy. They'll, they'll send it to you. Uh, they'll even pay for the postage. Lee, um, last month we had Tobias... Um... Uh, Rose Stockwell on the show talking about his new book, uh, Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy and What We Can Do About It. Very similar kind of book in some ways to mm -hmm. yours. But rather than 2020, he focuses on 2016. He told me that he woke up to all this in 2016 with yes. the Trump election. Um, what are the key dates for you? You've talked about May 2020. What about the Trump mm -hmm. election? Was this something that triggered your thinking about this? Are there particular events or dates um, particularly associated yeah. with social media, with Facebook? The key date for me was just about uh, when Tobias's was uh, in the uh, uh, during the 2016 election. I mean, that's when the OED uh, named Post-Truth its word of the year. That's when I started to write my book, Post-Truth. Um, and then, uh, you know, after the election, we saw Trump began to um, use Russian disinformation tactics uh, when he started to lie about the um, number of people that were at his inauguration or whether it rained on his inauguration. He was not necessarily just trying to convince us that a falsehood was true. He was asserting his dominance over reality. Um, so to me, the, the key date in this uh, for you know, the, the troubles, if you will, that we've been having over the last eight years, 20, the 2016 election, it, of course, has roots much further back than that. And in my book, Post-Truth, I talk about some of them, uh, some, you know, some of which go back many, many decades. But when it all came together, I believe, was on Election Day in 2016 in the United States. You distinguish between misinformation and disinformation. Is Trump or was Trump an agent of misinformation or disinformation in 2016? Disinformation. He knew it was it was intentional. Trump Trump is dismissed as a buffoon and a clown. He is a master propagandist. Uh, he succeeded in something that no one had done before, which is to um, wage a campaign of strategic denial. Uh, you know, on a massive scale uh, on the U.S. electorate. Uh, and its culmination was January 6th. So maybe he is a clown or a buffoon in some ways. He is also an intuitive, uh, you know, feral understand, a person who understands the tactics of information warfare. Is it any coincidence then in your mind that Putin's training was within the KGB and that these are classic textbook strategies out of the KGB playbook? I, I don't think it could be a coincidence. I mean, side by side, um, fire hose of falsehood, something that Putin uses and that Trump uses. What about ism? Both of them. Um, the repetition effect. I mean, I've written about this. I've written other articles about this to show that there are exact parallels parallels too close for it to be a coincidence that Trump is using the same techniques. I mean, people forget that before he was president, Trump had a lot of 
business dealings in post-Soviet Russia. He, he like I said, he understands how propaganda works. What about social media in all this, Lee? We've done many shows on it. Um, how much responsibility can be placed on uh, the people that run the big social media platforms from Twitter to Facebook yeah. to Instagram to TikTok? Yeah, you ask the most important question there. Because when I started to think about disinformation, I realized that there was a pipeline from the creators to the amplifiers to the believers. If you want to fight back against disinformation, you're not going to get the creators to stop creating it because it's in their interest. The believers in some ways are victims. Some will believe it, some, some won't. Sometimes you can be deprogrammed, sometimes you can't. It's the amplifiers that are the real problem. And that can be partisan media, social media. The social media companies, through their algorithms, um, you know, pr uh, privileging engagement, um, they could do more to fight against disinformation. Why don't they do more? It's because they don't want to. It's because they don't have the incentive to do so. Now, sometimes people have said, but look, it's such a massive problem. They, how could they possibly fight that? Uh, here's my challenge. Um, when's the last time you saw porn on Facebook? For most people, the answer is never. It's because they have a human team that fights against that as they do beheadings, as they do other acts of terrorism. They don't show that sort of thing on Facebook because they understand that if they did, they would lose money. It would uh, threaten their business. Um, I don't think they feel the same way about disinformation. If they did, I think they would, they would fight harder. Uh, Zuckerberg is always quoting the team that they have you know, how much money, how many posts they've taken down, how many people. But it's nothing compared to the scale of the problem or what they could do. Same thing at Twitter, um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Formerly um, known as Twitter, uh, Lee. They, they changed formerly, their name yes. to X. X. I mean, recently. Uh, well, back when they were Twitter, um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people, one of which was uh, RFK Jr. Um, at the night before Elon Musk took over, eight of them were still there. They hadn't been deplatformed. Now, why not? They were known liars. They were known propagandists, but they kept their platform. I think that it must be because it was in the interest of Facebook and now X to keep them there. We are talking with Lee McIntyre, uh, the author of an important new book on disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Take a short break, uh, remind everyone of our new sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It's very much in the business of protecting, if not truth, truths, and certainly a great opponent of the same thing that uh, Lee uh, McIntyre is against, disinformation. We're going to have a, a, a quick ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back talking with Lee about how we're going to fix all this, how to address this crisis. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. 
And that's libertiesjournal.com. And all my guests on the show are going to get a free annual subscription, including uh, Lee McIntyre, who's my Thank guest you. today. Uh, Lee, before we get to the fixes, one quick question. You, this, the subtitle of the book is How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Do those inevitably go together? Which is the the taller hill to protect? Where do, where do we need to get to if we're going to... Do, do we need to begin protecting, fighting for truth or democracy? Or are they the same things? I don't think you can protect democracy without fighting for truth. I think democracy depends on truth. I mean, the philosopher in me now wants to, you know, go go back to the Greeks for uh, for both of them. But I, I think that they go together. And the per, my inspiration for believing this, the person that in some ways caused me to write both post-truth and on disinformation is Tim Snyder, who wrote a book called On Tyranny, in which he had a line that I'll always remember. He said, post-truth is pre-fascism. And I think that's right. I think that um, if you don't protect the truth, you end up with autocracy or authoritarianism or fascism, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's been shown by what's going on in Russia and some democracies that we've lost in Hungary and elsewhere around the world. And what happens in America if people turn against democracy? Are they inevitably turning against truth? It seems as if Trump has an enormous lead. You seem to think yeah. he is an, uh, one of the principal agents of disinformation tied one way or the other to the Kremlin. Could America just shut down its democracy if everyone, a majority, believed in in his, what you yeah. believe at least, his big lie? It, it depends on what you mean by shut down. I mean, in Russia, would they say today that they're a dictatorship? They would not. They would bridle at that. I remember Xi in China recently being very upset because somebody used the, uh, the term dictator to or dictatorship to uh, talk about his China. Um, there's another term, uh, I mean, there are many terms for this, an electoral dictatorship, a dictatorship that has a um, patina of uh, democracy or legitimacy where people wear business suits and you have representatives and you have elections and they go around ostensibly doing the people's business, but it's a rigged game. It's really, you know, it's not an actual democracy. I think that's what happens when truth dies. I think that people like to pretend that it hasn't died yet. Boy, I think that's what you saw in Orwell's 1984, didn't you? Um, it's it's something where, you know, pe people, for, for whatever reason, dictators don't like to admit that they run a dictatorship. They like to pretend that they run a society in which people have a voice, in which, in fact, even the dictator is the voice of the people. You hear that all the time. But in actual fact, truth is dead, or at least on life support. And yet you do still see, even in dictatorships, uh, voices of truth, warriors for truth. In Russia, you have Navalny. He's in a, he's in a prison, but he's still standing up for uh, independent... I'm journalism. not sure if he's standing up. He's lying. I mean, he seems to be on his deathbed. Yes. I mean that as a joke. Um, so how are we going to deal with this? You, uh, you talk about fighting back. We need a plan. We, I don't know quite who we are. I guess people who believe in democracy yeah. and scientific truth. What kind of plan do we need, Lee? I think it has to be grassroots. Um, I think that 
people have to understand that one goal of disinformation is to get you to believe something false. Another goal is to polarize you around a factual issue. But an important third goal is to make you feel helpless, to make you feel that you have no power at all to change anything, to become cynical, to give up on the idea of truth and so also blame and accountability. But you are more powerful than you think you are. Um, and my book is a citizen's guide to what you can do to fight back. Now, some of what we need to do to fight back is simply to wake up to the fact that we're in an information war. You can't win an information war without first admitting that you're in one. But once you understand that we're actually now in an information war, uh, there are things that the ordinary citizen can do. Uh, some of the most important things that a citizen can do is to complain, to resist, to protest. Um, against cable news uh, companies that continue to use the word misinformation when they mean disinformation because they're trying to absolve themselves of the responsibility of saying that somebody lied or of saying who the liars are. Um, another thing that we can do is hold our elected representatives to account. I don't pretend that the current Congress is going to uh, do much more than they've done, but some of our elected representatives are awfully silent on the question of disinformation. Um, right now, in fact, there's, there's pushback from the right on the idea that uh, even fighting against disinformation is a form of censorship. But is this all right from the, the, you know, some people are going to be watching or listening to this, Liam, thinking it's just another liberal guy from Boston. Yeah. You teach yeah. at BU, you're published yeah. by MIT, you're part of this coastal elite talking down to the rest of us, talking about mm -hmm. denialism of one kind or another, suggesting that there is a scientific truth. Um, are, are progressives also uh, guilty of this? I mean, some people believe that there's post-truth on the left too. Well, there, there can be. I mean, anti-vax before uh, Trump uh, uh, polarized us on it, uh, or, you know, strictly over left-right was fairly equal between uh, liberals and conservatives on this belief, this earlier belief that I talked about, where the MMR vaccine uh, causes autism. You found just as many liberals as you did conservatives. Um, quite a bit of the progressive, uh, pu uh, of the pushback against GMOs is from the left. So, I mean, you can see this uh, on the left. Look, the example, um, if people think that disinformation can't come from the left, Modern disinformation warfare was invented in 1920 by Vladimir Lenin. You can't get much more left than that. It's just that these days, um, and I'm not trying to draw false, uh, I don't want to draw false equivalents. I don't want to overstate it. But I do want to say that uh, there's you know, been some work on this by Stephen Lewandowski, the cognitive scientist out of Bristol and others to show that these days, most of the disinformation that you see is from the right. And I think that the reason for that is that you know you're seeing that it's it's useful this idea that you know I mean the right has sort of picked up on this narrative that started with the left you know back in during the postmodernist days that um, there was no such thing as truth that all pollute that all truth was a, a a grab for power that ends up being a very seductive narrative if the truth threatens your political interests and I think that today you have some right wing postmodernists so the left is capable of this and we have to be careful of that but i don't want to draw uh i don't, I don't want to try to make things seem like they're equal when they're not because that in and of itself is to uh, cave into post-truth i think 
you say that one of the things we can do is complain, become activists when it comes to misinformation media. Let's use one example, Fox. Mm-hmm. Is Fox an agency of misinformation? And if it is, what are you supposed to do about it? Obviously, you wouldn't watch it, but it's the most popular news yeah. network in America. I'm suggesting it gets shut down, fined, controlled by the state. I would settle for people acknowledging what they actually do. How many people who watch Fox actually heard about the Dominion lawsuit and understand the stakes and understand that uh, their hosts were uh, sharing lies, were sharing information that they knew was untrue? I mean, has that message actually gotten out? Or, so or how do they get that? Is it, is, it, is it the role of like when you buy a packet of cigarettes now it comes with a warning with a warning get that warning when they watch fox news well i talked about grassroots before and here i'm going to give a shout out to two people that i have a great admiration for uh dave and aaron neinhauser are people that i met in person when i was up in rural pennsylvania they run an organization called hear yourself think and they teach techniques for having respectful conversations with people that you disagree with across the political divide. Their husband and wife team, they're former union organizers, and they go out to Trump rallies and they film their encounters, having these conversations, trying to talk to people about why they shouldn't watch Fox News, um, you know, about trying to uh, undermine MAGA beliefs and not getting Uh, a bad response, but in fact, in most cases, getting a good response because of the technique, because of the way that they're doing it. These are very brave people and I have great admiration. And I tried to do some of what they do with science deniers. Um, And that's my book, my earlier book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, which you know about. But they're out there doing it for MAGA. I think that we need much more uh, of that sort of thing. Remember that one goal, as I said, of disinformation is to polarize you. It doesn't just polarize the people who believe it. It polarizes the people on the other side to think they're not worth talking to. Why should I waste my breath? Uh, that person's MAGA. They're gone. I shouldn't even bother you know, having them over. I shouldn't speak to them. That's really wrong. Uh, I think that we change our minds when we trust the person that we're talking to. And I've continued to have friendships with people that I disagree with on many different issues because that is actually, it's not only the humane thing to do, um, it's how you convince somebody in the long run to change their mind. People who are victimized- well, That's just democracy. Are, that's you, yeah. you, you argue with your neighbor, with your Fox News yep. watching neighbor. And that's we do that as individuals, as citizens. Um, and some Why of them may more? be watching CNN or MSNBC, are you saying those are different categories? Uh, well, different categories of, of what? You mean people uh, who uh, Misinformation or disinformation than, um, than Fox News? Um, I think it's different in kind uh, in the sense that Fox News, uh, you know, has been shown in court that their hosts lie. I think that there's something a little bit more insidious that can go on at, at other networks like CNN which is that um, sometimes they succumb to confirmation bias or, you know, telling part of the narrative that they know is going to be popular with their audience and not the other part of it. I mean, 
all of the cable news networks get their ratings on a minute by minute basis. They all are profit making industries. They all depend on the engagement of their audience. So they can tell, maybe not in real time, but you know, the overnights now, they can scale it down to minute by minute and know which programs are selling, which segments are selling. And maybe those are the ones that they lead with, the ones that they start with. Um, that's a problem. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily privileging truth. Um, Orwell himself said that journalism was reporting what someone didn't want you to report. Everything else was propaganda. So, I mean, that can certainly happen on the left. Sometimes they need to tell hard truths that they have not told. And finally, um, finally, Lee, you talked about 2016 and the election then being critical in terms of a, a moment and the role of social media. What can we as citizens do, activists do, when it comes to social media? You've already said that the people who run these companies uh, need to be more responsible, but the chances are they won't. What, what should we do as users of X and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and threads? Complain. Complain. Uh, make sure, you know, drop the platform if you need to, but I think better to stay on the platform uh, and complain, complain about what? Complain about their uh, uh, ex the extent to which they don't fight back against disinformation. I mean, why aren't they doing more to fight back against anti-vax propaganda? Why aren't they doing more to fight back against the? But they uh, meaning around? they're not a newspaper; they're a platform. The platforms. So, so what well, are they supposed well, to do? Bad, uh, um, they uh, watch their bottom line, though. But should they censor anti-vax stuff? On Twitter, on 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 X or or, or Facebook, well, you, should people you've, not be allowed? You've to, used uh, a loaded word that? there, though. I mean, deplatforming a liar is not censorship. Um, refusing to amplify someone else's lie is not censorship. The the social media companies are protected by Section two hundred and thirty, which means that they can't be sued for allowing a lie to appear on their platform, but they also can't be sued for taking one down. There, uh, the First Amendment protects us from censorship from the government, not private companies. Uh, X and Facebook could decide tomorrow to do more if they wanted to. And you know how I know this? They did. Just before the 2020 election, Facebook, YouTube, uh, um, then Twitter uh, did have content warnings about disinformation about the election. They did have more content warnings about uh, the, uh, the pandemic. Um, then after the election, uh, they stopped after the election. They but, they but changed the dial. COVID, what, what did they What did they do? Right, but during COVID, there was a huge debate, particularly between DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, governors of two very different states, in dealing with COVID about how to to deal with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought that DeSantis's strategy was corrupt or rotten or some form of misinformation. It seems I'm not an expert on this, but it seems as if his argument was if not as legitimate, it was a legitimate argument in terms of confronting the COVID um, epidemic. I mean, who's to determine what you can and can't say? Is it for YouTube? Um, who's to determine what you take down on, on YouTube, on, on vaccines, on whether you should be forced to have a vaccine, on what state policy should be, on school policy? These yeah. things are incredibly complicated and controversial. You're asking me if the social media company should be an arbiter of truth. And they've pushed back against doing that. They just want to be a forum where everyone has a voice. 
but they're not. And they understand that they're not. They do censor, in your words, voices that they think are illegitimate that don't belong there. It's just that the question is where to uh, where to draw the line. But, but where to draw the line? If, if there's a, a YouTube executive, for example, watching this, what 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 are you saying? That citizens should argue that YouTube should aggressively censor yeah. stuff that they believe is a form of misinformation? How, how about this? Um, when something leads to public harm, such as death, they should pay attention. Um, so the vaccine thing bothers me quite a bit because, you know, there is just reporting recently, uh, I forget where it came out, maybe it was, the, uh, don't remember, it was the New York Times, that there were more deaths from COVID in blue states, in, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, red states than in blue states. I mean, misinformation about COVID led to death. Uh, it's not the first time that science denial has led to death. People were victimized. People who watched. So are you Fox saying News. that? And this is the final. I mean, this is a complicated question, Lee. Maybe yeah. you come back on again and discuss it. Are you saying yeah. that YouTube should have taken down videos that suggest that you shouldn't have to wear a mask? I'm saying that they could put a content label on it. Or that if it was straight up uh, propaganda, uh, straight up disinformation, yes, they could deplatform it. As they, they do for, look, um, I, I've met many flat earthers who were uh, radicalized from uh, YouTube videos. And the problem is when you watch one flat earth video, you get 20 more. Um, I've been told they don't do that anymore, that YouTube now uh, you know, doesn't, whatever they tweaked in their algorithm, it doesn't do that anymore. Could they do the same thing about for vaccines? I mean, they're causing genuine harm to uh, to people. They're they're not just represent you know let a thousand flowers bloom and represent another point of view. They're giving amplification to people who are doing harm to other people. They should take more of an interest in that. And and the point I want to make emphatically is this: refusing to amplify a lie is not censorship. You know, you can be a radical free speech advocate and think that the Ku Klux Klan should have a, a parade permit in your town, that we have to allow that if we believe in free speech. That does not require you to go to that rally and hand out flyers for the Ku Klux Klan. You don't have to help someone amplify their lies. And that's what Twitter and Facebook are now doing.